This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. The husband of Arwen and uh, father of Mateo, and I think all of you know that, so you're probably just wondering, why are you up here and not playing the drums this morning? And it's a good question I'm not really going to answer, but... Um, I, uh, <laughs> I'm really grateful to, to walk through Psalm 36 with you this morning. It's a really beautiful psalm, and um, if you're newer to Emmaus or have just forgotten or something, we are in the middle of a, a summer series through the psalms, and we've done this, I think this is our maybe third or fourth summer um, that we've done uh, a series in the psalms uh, over the summer, and I really, I really have enjoyed it because each psalm kind of has its own flavor, right? And um, you know, the totality of the Psalms really covers the totality of human experiences and emotions. So there's joy and there's sorrow, um, there's elation and, and also despair. Um, and we get a little bit of both of those things in Psalm 36. It's sort of a, a psalm of lament, but also a psalm of petition and asking God to intervene. Um, so before we dive in, let's pray. God, um, we thank you that you haven't left us to our own devices, but you do intervene in our world, and you've also given us your word. You've given us the Psalms uh, to help us understand you and help us to know you in a deeper way. I just also thank you for your spirit, and that it doesn't matter if this is the first time or the hundredth time I've preached, that really it's, it's all about your spirit moving in our hearts um, today, and, and that's really what changes us. So I just pray that your spirit would be present with us and help to speak through me and encourage all of us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, so, um, okay, so Psalm 36. Uh, You know, first I just want us to kind of take a step back and look at the psalm as a whole and think about some things that maybe will help us understand its movement and meaning. Um, So first of all, I mean, this is really obvious, but maybe, maybe not actually. <laughs> so psalms, psalms are songs, right? And, you know, song is poetry. And, and really, the way poetry engages with us is not just with our minds, but also with our hearts, right? Our, our emotions. And so as we're going through the psalm, I just want us to pay attention to what, um, you know, how the, the psalm is trying to engage with our emotions. And using imagery, right? It's not just making a logical argument that we're supposed to nod our heads to, but it's also trying to impact us uh, in a way. Um, you know, something to consider, too, is sort of the background or subtext for the psalm. The psalm. Why was it written in the first place? And we don't really know. The, the tagline at the beginning doesn't really tell us. But um, Aaron was alluding to last week how uh, David, you know, he was under persecution from Paul before David was king. And when, or sorry, Saul. When uh, Saul was king, um, you know, Saul really hated David's guts. and <laughs> He tried to, tried to kill him. Um, so, you know, David had that going on in his life at one point. Later on, when David was king... His own son, Absalom, tried to overthrow him and kill him and almost succeeded. And so, you know, David has a lot of these circumstances in his life where people are out to get him. And so, uh, you know, I think this is just my own speculation, but I wonder if, uh, you know, this maybe wasn't even written for a particular circumstance, but just David wrote this because he experienced this so often. Someone, you know, out to get him, an evil person uh, who is opposing him and opposing God, too. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's written pretty broadly in a way that it could be applied to just David's everyday life of someone opposing him um, and plotting evil for him at some point. The last thing I want us to notice is really the structure. And I have, um, I have a, I'm a very visual person. I know you can't actually read those words, but 
the, the psalm has a sort of symmetry to it, um, right? It sort of starts and ends in the same place, and it ascends to a point and kind of descends back to that place. And the really fancy word for that is chiasm, but I just think this actually looks like a sandwich, right? And that's the really unholy way to think about it. But, you know, really, there's sort of a setup in the beginning, but the good stuff is really in the middle. And then we return to the situation in the beginning, but in light of all of the really good stuff in the middle. So that's kind of how I've been thinking about this psalm. And um, really, that's also going to chart our journey through the psalm today. Um, our journey is going to be considering the depths of evil, like realizing the evil that's in the world outside and also in our own hearts. We're going to consider and really let God's overwhelming goodness affect us and meditate on that. And then we're going to consider what our response should be to this. So let's dive in. So starting in verse one, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. All right, so I'm gonna do a little tangent before we even get into the psalm. Does anyone... If you're reading this in your own Bible, does anyone have, does it say, uh, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in my heart instead of his heart? Does anyone have that? Okay. So some translations have say that instead. They say, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in my heart. So I just wanted to address that in case anyone had it. Really, there's um, just different manuscripts that say different things. Neither one of those really changes the fundamental meaning of the psalm. Um, Just, it kind of places the emphasis in a different place. So, Um, The way that I think we're all reading it, it says transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart as if there's sort of a a core or a seed of transgression that's kind of calling out um, to the wicked person, right, and compelling them to act. Um, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in my heart. That sounds kind of odd to our ears in English, um, but really, you know, people who translate it that way and say that that's the right manuscript would say that, you know, David, the psalmist here, is saying that there's transgression, transgression of this evil one that kind of speaks out to him and causes him unease and bothers him. And there's also sort of this prophetic insight that he has into the, the evil of the evil one, right? And in a way that, you know, someone who's, who's righteous or knows God kind of like can see evil and kind of it bothers them right away. They have a just a gut response to evil. So that's, that's how, you know, people who translate it deep in my heart would say what the emphasis um, is Anyway, doesn't really change the nature of the psalm one way or another, just places the emphasis in a different place. Um, okay, so let's actually de- dive in now. Um, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. So, here we have kind of a sketch of a person who's wicked or evil, right? Some of the, some of the things we can pick out, some of the qualities we can pick out. Um, does not fear God. Doesn't, means, this means doesn't really take God seriously, right? As a result, um, this person doesn't think that their wrongdoing, that their, their plotting will be found out or dealt with. Kind of say, I can get away with this. They're deceitful. They're ultimately unwise, right? Because they're not seeking what is good. Um, they're, they're in fact seizing to do what is good, not just rejecting evil, but they won't even do good. They're arrogant, right? This is uh, indicated by, in verse two, there's a, there's a sense of self-flattery, right? And 
later on in the psalm, there's a return to the arrogance. And then, you know, I think what's most fascinating, too, is this image of this person laying on their bed and thinking about evil things. It's, uh, it's really a striking, striking image, right? The idea that outside of all distractions, just kind of left to, to their own devices, they can't help but think of evil. And in a way, the meditation of their heart generates evil. So I think, you know, this resonates with other, other places in Scripture where we find evil. Um, this, uh, the beginning of this psalm reminds me a lot of the beginning of Psalm 10, except Psalm 10 is a much more comprehensive list, but just to, um, just to kind of do a highlight reel, um, in Psalm 10, in verse 2, it says, um, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. In verse 4, it says, in the pride of his face, the wicked one does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. In verse 7, it says, His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. So throughout scripture, we see that there's some consistent markers of evil, right? It's arrogance, it's pride, it's not just an atheism of like, oh, I don't know if there's a God or not. There's like a functional atheism that's saying, you know what? God doesn't exist, so I can get away with whatever I want. I think it's maybe hard to connect with um, what we think might be the circumstances of David writing the psalm, right? I don't think any of us have been so politically successful or leading God's people in a way that means that we always have people coming after us, like we might literally have assassins at our doorstep every night, right? But we can look out into the world and see plenty of evil. And I think using the images and the language of this psalm, we can start to identify where evil does exist. So I want us to kind of ask a few of these questions here and um, you know, just actually sit with this for a second, just kind of actually sit in the evil that we see in the world around us. So we can ask things like, where does arrogance thrive? Where do we, where do we see arrogance win out over, over love? Where do people scheme against their neighbor? Where do we look out in the world and, and feel hopelessness? Where do people act like there isn't a God and justice won't be executed? You know, I think... I hope we can all, you know, realize that there is evil in the world. I even think about, um, there's a cold case in New York that recently came up, and you might have seen it in the news of, you know, some, someone, who, um, someone who lured young women to him and killed, killed them. He's a serial killer and did this over decades. And you just say, I can't imagine that person actually believing that they'd ever be brought to justice, or how, how else could they do this? And I think there's so many circumstances like that we can look out into in the world and say, just the weight of evil is incredible. And it seems like God is just absent from that situation. We can look out in the world and see arrogance and how people step on other people, right? I think we could ask this closer to home. I think it's important to actually put ourselves in David's shoes a little bit too. Just say, just ask, you know, where do we feel taken advantage of? Like, maybe we are in a situation where there is legitimately someone who hates us and is out to get us. And, you know, 
Maybe we are actually the victim of injustice, maybe currently or past. I think it's important to, to identify that and not just gloss over that and say it's okay, right? But I think it's also important to bring this question even a little bit closer to home. I think, unfortunately, sometimes in this psalm, we, rep- we look like the wicked person more than we look like David. Sometimes we're the ones who are sitting in our beds thinking about how angry we are at someone and how we want something bad to happen to them or maybe just you know, greedily thinking about how we're going to accrue more wealth <laughs> or whatever. Sometimes the meditation of our own hearts isn't right and it's not fixed on the Lord. We're not petitioning the Lord to help us. We're scheming evil things and that's sort of the natural bent of our own hearts. We, you know, in Romans 3, and uh, Paul is actually quoting Psalm 14, um, he says that, you know, they have all turned aside. Everyone, everyone has gone wayward. <laughs> Together, all humans have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one, right? So theologically, we know that's the truth, but let's also ask ourselves some of these same questions. So in what areas of our lives do we act like God doesn't exist? You know, I think maybe it's not our whole life, but I think a lot of times we, we feel like we're a pretty much a good person, but there's one area of our life we don't really want God to touch. We want God to stay away from that. We don't really want to suffer the consequences of, of our actions in that one little area. In what situations do we act in arrogance? Do we believe that we have it figured out and we absolutely know the right course of action? What do we think about when we are laying awake at night, when we're not distracting ourselves with work or our kids or our phones? What do we think about? Where does our heart turn to? Where do we speak deceit? Where, not just lie out, outright, but where do we not tell the whole truth? Sometimes that's to others. Sometimes that's to ourselves. Yeah. Sometimes we start to resemble this wicked one in ways we don't really like to admit. Um, you know, I think uh, a little bit about my own personal story and my spiritual journey. Um, you know, I was raised in a Christian home, and uh, I also grew up in the church, but in college, I started to struggle immensely with my faith, and I really didn't know what I believed for a number of years. And, you know, a big part of this was actually the problem of evil, right? And so some, some philosophers talk about the problem of evil as something uh, that says, you know, essentially, okay, we see there's evil in the world, we can acknowledge that there's evil out in the world, and therefore there definitely couldn't be a God because how could he create a world with this much evil in it? If there really is a God, he would have created a world that was completely good and we wouldn't have to deal with all the suffering that comes with evil. I think they have, you know, people who say that have a really good point. <laughs> But just as much as that, much as, just as much as I dealt with the problem of evil on the outside, I was also dealing with the problem of evil on the inside. Like, how could God make me so broken <laughs> that I couldn't even live up to my own aspirations, much less who God wanted me to be? How could I be a part of the problem? I didn't, in a certain way, I didn't want to be part of the problem, right? I didn't want to be evil, but, you know, I just was. I was broken, and, you know, what I was looking for then, and I think, I think all of us probably struggle with those two questions to some degree, and uh, so, so something I was looking for, and I think maybe we all look for a little bit, is an answer for evil. We ask God 
to tell us why he allowed evil in the world. We ask him to answer for evil. But really what we need is an answer to evil. We don't need a philosophy of evil. We don't need to understand the mechanics of divine providence nearly as much as we need to understand that God will respond and he has a solution, he has a remedy, he has a rescue for us. That's much more of what we need. Um, Unfortunately, that's kind of where the psalm goes, right? So we've just been considering the depths of evil, both in the world outside and in our own hearts. Um, But the psalm actually doesn't stick there very long before making a a left turn, right? (laughs) Into uh, considering God's overwhelming goodness. So let's continue reading in in verse uh, verse five. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. So right out of the gate, we have some really vivid imagery, right? God's, God's love is immeasurable. Um, I, th- <laughs> I was thinking about this, and uh, my son, Mateo, really likes using a tape measure, and he likes to try and get it all the way up to the ceiling, right? And, and the right tape measure will, will get up to the ceiling, right? But just try, try and imagine doing that to the sky, trying to measure the sky with a tape measure, and that's kind of the... The, the sense, you know, with which David's trying to compare God's, God's love. Like, we can't measure it. We can't even see the, the ends of the sky, much less the heavens. It, it, you know, like this is faithfulness. It reaches to the clouds or to the sky. There's, there's a sense in which it's not just about the height and, and how vast it is, but it's vast in a way that we can't escape it. We can hide inside, but when we go outside, the sky is still going to be there. And that's what God's faithfulness is like. We can't escape it. <clears throat> going on <clears throat> in verse 6, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. I think this verse is written for us in Colorado, right? Um, you know, we love the mountains. We know you know, about the mountains. And I think sometimes we actually, uh, you know, take them for granted a little bit. And, you know, I I remember driving back um, from Kansas and crossing into the Colorado border and you'd be like hundreds of miles away and you'd start to see the mountains. And this is really part of what David's trying to get at. Like God's righteousness is, is obvious from far away. It's something you orient yourself to. It's not something that orients itself around you. Um, and just in the way that a, a, the height of a mountain and the breadth of a mountain, it's massive. And it's just, it's so, like, we're so small compared to a mountain, you know, looking at five foot five versus 14,000 feet, right? And, and so it, there's no comparison with our righteousness and God's righteousness. <clears throat> God's judgments are like the great deep. This is sort of a, these two metaphors are paired, right? There's just an unmeasurable height of God's righteousness, but then there's this vast depth also of his judgment. And I think judgment gets, you know, we don't really know how to use that word, right? Like we say no judgment a lot because human judgment is really uh, infallible, but judgment is really just the ability to see reality clearly for what it is and the ability to act on it, right? Um, when a judge hands down a sentence, uh, there's, a, there's a measure of clarity of like, this is what has happened and these are the consequences. Or, you know, um, we think of natural disasters and there's, you know, when governors see the devastation that's happening, they proclaim, this, this situation is happening. This is, we're in a disaster. We're going to allocate all these resources to mitigate this disaster. And that's, that's kind of the sense in which God has judgment. He can see 100% clearly reality and he's able to act on it. 
Um, I really like what Calvin says about this verse um, in his commentary on this psalm. He says, however great the depth of wickedness which there is among men, and though it seems like a flood which breaks forth and overflows the whole earth, yet still greater is the depth of God's providence by which he righteously disposes and governs all things. So, you know, like when the Cherry Creek was overflowing its banks in May, imagine, you know, that's kind of a little bit concerning, but imagine if it was flowing into the Grand Canyon. You wouldn't be concerned that the Grand Canyon had enough capacity to deal with the Cherry Creek. And that's what God's judgment is like uh, versus the wickedness among us. And then the last part of that verse, man and beast you save, O Lord. God didn't just create the world, he sustains everything in the world. Moving on in verse 7, we start to see how God's goodness extends directly to us humans, right? He says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. This is a really common metaphor um, throughout the Psalms and throughout Scripture. It means a comprehensive protection, right? But it's also, there's sort of a quality to it as well. Um, Jesus says in... um, in the Gospel of Luke, he talks about um, he talks about uh, Jerusalem rejecting him, and he says, "Oh, I wish I could gather you into. I wish I could gather you to me, like a mother hen protects her chicks." So God has so much care for us. He's he's vast, and and he has the you know comprehensive protection over us, but he also cares for us deeply, like a mother cares for her young. Moving on in verse 8, we see more goodness of God. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. It's not just a meal, it's a feast, right? And it's not just a a pitcher of ice water. It's not just a pool. It's it's a river. It's unending, right? There's no end to it. You can't exhaust it. And then in verse 9, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we do see light. I love, I love that last line because I don't really know what it means. But I think, I think what it's kind of getting at is, you know, light is fundamental for us perceiving the world around us with our eyes. Just as fundamental and even more so, God's light is to all of reality. We can't even, he undergirds reality. We can't even, we can't perceive anything without his truth illuminating our world. It's amazing. So just to kind of review, we have uh, in one corner uh, a wicked man who's kind of personifying evil, and qualities of evil are deceitful, and almost a deceitful that's kind of self-defeating because you start to believe your own lies. We have you know, someone scheming under the cover of darkness and in their covers uh, on their bed trying to do evil and trying to convince themselves that they won't, they won't have to answer for their evil. So that's in one corner. In the other corner, we have a good good God, and there's no comparison. He's immeasur- he has immeasurably vast love and faithfulness. He has in- un- uh, incomparable, immovable righteousness and judgment. He's a perfect view of reality and the perfect ability to execute justice. He's the creator and sustainer of every living thing. He's the source of all truth, pleasure, good, and nourishment, and he cares deeply for us. You know, um, 
I described a little bit of my own spiritual journey earlier and just how what I really I thought I wanted was an answer for the evil in the world and an answer for the, the evil in my own heart. But what I really needed is God ans- God's answer to evil, right? And, you know, for me, that came to, that, that really came in seeing Jesus for who he was. I just, I was captivated by Jesus himself and it, it became less about like, how, how exactly are you going to work out all the stuff in the world around me or the stuff in my own heart? But it became about, wow, Jesus is really wise in how he deals with people. He is really loving and tender, but he also calls it like it is. Like, you, you love those passages in the Gospels where Jesus really tells it like it is, right? We love his judgments. Um, but also, yeah, his love, right? And, you know, I think the most amazing thing and, and just also the most perplexing thing, too, is that the most evil thing that's ever happened in the world is Jesus' death in the first place. He didn't deserve that, right? But it's also where you see God's love and it's in, in the most clarity, right? So we've really considered God's goodness and how it's overwhelming in comparison to evil. <clears throat> when we're faced with evil, whether that's the threat of evil around us or just the threat of evil in our own hearts, um, we have a God who is so overwhelmingly good. What should our response be? And of course, the psalm tells us, the psalm shows us, it's petitioning God. It's asking God to intervene in the world around us and in our own lives. So let's continue in verse 10. Um, oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. So here we see David, you know, first of all, asking God's steadfast love to be with him. It's almost as if to say, God, you know, he's, he, and I want to I point out, it says, oh, at the beginning. It almost like he's still struggling with the situation he's in. The, the previous verses aren't an incantation that just makes everything better or makes you feel better. He's still wrestling with this, but he's stepping on a little bit of faith and he's saying, continue your steadfast love to me. That's the thing I need the most is your steadfast love. I need all of those things that I just spoke about you to be true in my life. Your, your love, your faithfulness, your perfect judgment and righteousness. And then he asks God to directly intervene in the exact situation he's in. He says, let not the foot of the arrogant come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked. Right? So he's asking God, you know, please don't let someone hurt me. <laughs> like, really, really basically, that's what he's asking for. And then in the last verse, he says, there the evildoers lie fallen, they're thrust down, unable to rise. Um, kind of picking up on the end of verse 11 and in verse 12, um, David asks God to not let the wicked drive him away. And we can ask, where, where does David not want to be driven away from? Where does he want to stay? And I think there's sort of an obvious answer. He wants to stay in his home in Jerusalem, right? Uh, that's where he lives. But more importantly, that's for Jerusalem, that's where God dwelled, for David, right? This is the holy city. And so I think, God, I think David's saying, like, don't drive me away from your presence. I think for us, it's, it's really great because God's presence indwells in us because of what Jesus has done. And he's also here with us because we're meeting together. And so, um, you know, we get to know God in a way that not even David did. Um, but then out, outside of there, outside of God's presence, um, or outside of, yeah, there, there the evildoers lie fallen, unable to rise. 
I think, I think what this is saying is not that um, the situation has resolved itself, but I think <clears throat> David is prophetically looking forward to the fact that the evildoer will meet his end. He will not be able to act on the world anymore, right? God doesn't have an end, but evil does have an end. Um, you know, there's, uh, <laughs> again, going to the comparisons, it's like the, the evil one acting in the world is as fruitless as someone just trying to punch the side of a mountain. It's not going to do anything. And, you know, where, this, where the evil ends up, it's, it's as inanimate as a corpse. And I think as much as this is a personification of evil, that's what we have to look forward to. We know that Jesus um, is going to come back in his perfect judgment and, and execute, uh, yeah, perfect righteousness on the world. So, you know, how can, we, how can we practice this? How can we really enter into the psalm and petition God? Um, here's just some little prayers that I kind of wrote from the language of the psalm. So we can ask God, God, we want to know you. It's a simple one, but it's, it's really important. God, we desperately need your steadfast love. Amen. Yeah. Deliver us from evil. I think Jesus taught us to pray that, right? <laughs> so it's, that's a good one. And some, sometimes we don't think of that. We want you to put an evil or an end to all evil and suffering. I think we also can get language from this psalm that allows us to petition God to deal with the evil inside of us. You know, whether we belong to Jesus or not, <laughs> we have, you know, we have a natural tendency to do evil. And even when we do belong to Jesus, he's still sanctifying us. He's still drawing us closer to him and further away from our natural tendencies towards selfishness and arrogance and pride and all the things that lead to us causing others hurt in the world. So we can ask God, help me to know you. Give me an upright heart. Help me to fear you more than I fear sin or love sin, right? Help me to come to terms with how small and pathetic my sin seems in contrast with how big and glorious you are. Not in a sense that we should be afraid, I mean, we should be afraid sort of of God's wrath, but if we belong to him, that's not something we have to be afraid of anymore, but just help us to see like how we're like this guy punching the side of the mountain when we're sinning. It's just, it's completely pointless. Help me feel how immeasurable your love is for me right? I think sometimes we need to feel it more than we even need to know it. Amen. Help me to be rooted in the truth and the light that you display, oh God. Um, I just want to acknowledge that this is really hard. When we're in the midst of suffering, when we're in the midst of experiencing evil, it's really hard to come to terms with who God really is. We could read this psalm and still you know, it would barely move us an inch in the right direction. Um, but you know what? That's okay. <laughs> I think two things to remember, you know, first of all, Tim Keller says that it's not the quality of my faith that matters, but the object of my faith yeah. that, that I put my faith in, right? And I think he uses an image of walking across a frozen lake. And you can have a lot of trust in a frozen lake, but if the ice is only a quarter inch thick, you're going to fall in. It doesn't matter how how you know how you think it's going to end up and controversially like you can have a little bit of faith but if the ice is 12 inches thick you're going to make it across the lake okay you're not going to fall in and that's what that's what god's steadfast love and faithfulness is like to us like even even the little littlest bit of faith that we can 
we can put in him goes a long way. But also, you know, when we're petitioning God or trying to petition God, when we have really come to terms with the depth of evil and we acknowledge his goodness, it can still be hard to petition him, but we also have Jesus who's interceding on our behalf, right? In Romans 8, it says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So even in our own imperfect petitions to God, Jesus is actually, um, and I don't know how to even put this theologically accurately, but he's steering the divine will towards our good, right? Jesus is focusing God's goodness on our lives. So Psalm 36 really shows us what evil is like, gives us a definition of evil in the world around us and in our own hearts. But it also, and more importantly, shows us God's overwhelming goodness that's so superlative in every way to what you know comes, comes to really be really uh, pathetic, pathetic attempts against his will is what evil is. And so, you know, we don't have to fear. And in fact, we can ask God directly to intervene in our lives, directly in our situations and just in the situation of the world. We can ask God to work in our own hearts. Um, I think it's appropriate to use poetry to interpret poetry and song to interpret song. So uh, I want to kind of leave us with some words from one of my favorite songs. This is written by Rich Mullins. Um, It's, it always gets me right here. <laughs> um, this song is called Nothing is Beyond You. It actually quotes, like, I counted at least three or four or maybe five psalms, but it really echoes um, the, the core message of Psalm 36. Um, it says, Nothing is beyond you. You stand beyond the reach of our vain imaginations, our misguided piety. The heavens stretch to hold you, and deep cries out to deep, singing that nothing is beyond you. Nothing is beyond you. Time cannot contain you. You fill eternity. Sin can never stain you. Death has lost its sting. And I cannot explain the way you came to love me except to say that nothing is beyond you. <laughs> Indeed, nothing is beyond our God. Um, in the words of Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the words of David, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. What should our response to this good news be? Asking him in faith to intervene, to protect us, to put an end to evil, and to continue to work in us in our own lives, to continue to help us to know and trust him. Let's pray. God, we do need you to intervene in our lives and in the world around us. I think so often we brush aside the evil that we see, and I know I do this. I don't really want to pay attention to all the bad things happen happening in the world, and I don't want to pay attention to what's happening in my own heart because it's scary, and it can cause us to lose our faith, literally, if we consider it too deeply. But we we thank you that it doesn't end there, that you have a response to evil, and that response is in Jesus, and in Jesus we can see the overwhelming goodness that you display. 
Help us to trust more in your goodness. Help us to, when we're in times of trouble, to come back to this psalm and just see uh, the ways and just kind of immerse ourselves in the imagery that displays how good your love, your faithfulness is, how vast your righteousness and judgments are, and how much you care for us. Um, Help us more than just to know that in our heads. Help us to feel that in our hearts today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.